lives and dies who tells your story. If you have to ask, you probably haven't seen it, but hope you're having an outstanding Hamiltonian summer um, as I am. Hey, we're in the book of Revelation, and we are up to chapter 3, looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor that John is writing to. We're up to the church in Sardis, and I'm going to read these six verses for us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to unpack this together. Verse 1, chapter 3, Jesus is speaking, and he says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains as and about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. Lord, this is a hard word. It's a tough word. But Lord, it's a loving word, uh, particularly for those of us who maybe have known you, claim to have known you for a long time. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a loving word particularly for those of us in our culture who may have been raised in a veneer of spirituality, but it's something that we've more inherited than we've owned as our own faith. And so, Lord, we need your help. Um, we don't want to be like the church in Sardis, and if we are like the church in Sardis, we want to change and turn and repent. So help us now to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. So here Jesus presents himself, look in verse 1, um, as the one who has the spirits, seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And of course, the seven stars in this context are the seven churches themselves. Um, and remember, seven is a symbolic number. It's a number of completeness. And the idea is that, of course, the seven spirits signifies this is the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And we know one of the chief functions of the Holy Spirit is to bring life. And so, so I think the idea here is that G, when it says Jesus has or possesses the Spirit and the stars, it's almost like a doctor um, having a patient in his hands, examining them, looking for signs of life, looking for signs of health, looking for signs of death and decay. What's the spiritual status of of the patient or the physical status of the patient in the same way Jesus is bringing um, is has this imagery of he has us the church his people or at least those who claim to be his people and we are in his hand and he's looking at us and trying to find out in a sense is there spiritual life and as as we see in here his prognosis for this for for the patient here so to speak is not good. In fact, he's telling us um, that 
they are at the point of near death and it, they, they must be resuscitated and made alive. And so it helps to understand a little bit of the history and situation of Sardis, the city he's writing to, to help us see how he's bringing uh, the history of the city into the spiritual history of, of the church. So Sardis is a, is a city 30 miles south of Thyatira. So remember this letter was making its way around in a circuitous fashion. And this is stop number five for uh, this letter that John is circulating and writing. And we know that Sardis was one of the most powerful cities um, in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman Empire. In the sixth century, um, it has its founding all the way back to that time. And it had a reputation as being impregnable. Uh, it's surrounded by mountains. I think it's on a little uh, peninsula of, of land and it's just, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's sort of an impregnable uh, fortress, so to speak. And it had the reputation, okay, of being such as that. But what's interesting is that despite this, this I mean, almost indefensible or def incredibly uh, defensible position they had, um, strategically, they had actually been conquered twice, two different times in their history, uh, first by the Persians and then by the Greeks. And so Jesus is playing off of this terminology um, to say that just as the city of Sardis had this reputation that they were impregnable, they were mighty, they were this um, incredible fortress, they were unconquerable. In reality, the reputation did not match up with the reality. Um, they had, you know, the city at different times had grown complacent and leaned upon its history and leaned upon its tradition and leaned upon its reputation only to be come against and conquered um, to show that the reputation did not match the reality. And Jesus is drawing this parallel to, to, to show the church this is, in fact, your spiritual history. We don't know what when precisely the church was founded, it was probably founded around the same time as the church in Ephesus was planted in Acts 19. So it's 25, 30 years old by this point. Um, obviously, there was a point in time in the church's life where it had a vital ministry in history. It had a reputation that was well-earned, well-deserved as being spiritually alive. When other churches would come together and they would pray for other churches in the area. They would say, we pray for Sardis. That is a church we want to be like. That is a people we want to be like. They have a reputation for being alive. But Jesus says, I know the real deal. And long, long ago, your reputation stopped matching your reality. You're in essence, almost, at, spiritually speaking, at room temperature. You're, you're close to passing away. Now, now, how did this happen? Well, um, a couple of clues that we have here. Um, one, look in verse three, Jesus does say they still have a few names in Sardis, okay? People who have not sold their garments. In other words, there were some, there was still a small remnant of the church who were thriving, who were doing the work of ministry, who were seeking out the Lord. And it seems that these few were carrying the load for many. So in other words, their faithfulness was sort of, um, you know, the spiritual capital that the rest of the church was riding upon. And, and they were sort of doing ministry faithfulness vicariously, right? 
It was this sense of like, well, there's awesome things happening in this church. I'm not involved in any of it, but somebody else is is doing it. And so apparently uh, a faithful few were sort of carrying the day, but that wasn't going to last much longer. See, from a distance, things looked good, but up close and personal, because Jesus knows the heart, they were anything but. And I think this is a real warning for us in terms of the dangers of nominal Christianity. What, what is nominal Christianity? Well, nominal Christianity happens when people are born in the church, raised in the church, raised in a sort of a Christian subculture and context. Um, they faithfully go to church. Um, they do religious things. But the faith of their parents, so to speak, or their spiritual forefathers or their church isn't really their faith, okay? It isn't a personalized faith. It's not a, a, a deep, real faith. It's an inherited faith. It's, 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 something, it's, it's faith by osmosis. It's, it's faith that happens um, almost like an inheritance that's sort of passed down from generation to generation. And it's something that you do. It's something that you're comfortable with, but it really hasn't touched your heart and touched um, the realities of your life. And again, this is a great word, a great um, warning, particularly um, maybe here in the South, less and less so, but, but still vestiges of it here, that there is this nominal sense of, yes, I'm a Christian because my family are Christians, or I was born in the church, I was baptized in the church. I was catechized in the church. I was confirmed in the church, but I've never really owned it and taken it for my own. And so a lot of times this happens, you know, this really shows up in people's lives when they get away from home for the first time or they go from college, go get away from college. And a lot of times parents really struggle with why is my child, um, you know, forsaking their faith. And oftentimes that can be because maybe they never had authentic, genuine faith. Maybe, and we don't know, obviously, all the time, but maybe it's because it was this faith that the church in Sardis had. It was an, is a nominal inherited faith. So, but here's the thing. If, the, if it was too late, Jesus wouldn't be writing, right? If it was too late for us who struggle with nominal Christianity or those who are in our lives who profess Christ but at the same time, there doesn't seem to be any kind of heart reality. There is, it's never too late because Jesus is writing. He's issuing a warning. And what does he tell the church? What does he tell you and I? He says to um, wake up, verse 2, and strengthen what remains is in a, and is about to die. And so he says that, and it's, and it's a warning here. It's In fact, it's the most uh, vivid warning that Jesus gives to, to any of the churches. He gives to the church in Sardis. And he compares this warning to coming against them, if you can imagine. So, so, you know, there'll be many in that day, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? And he will say, I, I don't know who you are, right? And, and so Jesus is wanting to warn those in this state to wake up. And he tells them that he's going to come against them. Look in the text, look at verse 3, like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Well, here is what Jesus is again drawing upon the history of the of the church in Sardis. When to, um, it's important to know, probably I don't know, sometime earlier in this century, 
um, Sardis had been destroyed by an earthquake, okay? And it had been be, been rebuilt, but it, had, it was a very traumatic time, as you can imagine. And, and this would have been still part of the cultural lore, the, the history of the city. And what happens with an earthquake? Well, we know that there's no warning with an earthquake. A little bit now, but definitely not then. It comes like a thief. It comes suddenly. And so Jesus is drawing upon that imagery to say, in the same way, okay, um, I, am, I can appear at any time, either in my second coming or your life might be required of you. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. And again, this really speaks to this reality of, you know, of those who might say, well, this is a time in my life I want to be free and autonomous and doing whatever I want to do. I've got plenty of time later to figure out my Christian life. I've got plenty of time later to get things right with God. And obviously, um, that's foolishness, right? Uh, it's just like the man who built a bigger barn. Soul, I want, I want more. And what does Jesus call that man? He says, fool, right? Tonight, your very life is required of you. And so, yes, these are indeed sobering words, but I really want us to see that they're loving words. They are gracious words um, because they are offering the opportunity to repent. And um, I can think back into my own life when um, th this was me, okay? This was my personal testimony. I was the church in Sardis all the way up to my sophomore year in college. I had a name or a reputation at a profession of faith. I knew the theology, but my heart had remained untouched. I was just by osmosis feeding on the spirituality of others. And I used that same sort of rationale. There's plenty of time to get this together until God suddenly transformed, changed my heart in the summer of 1988 and um, sent some campus crusaders into my life and um, I really came to terms with the reality here that I'm not who I say I am. Um, and, and the reputation without the reality is not going to do me or anybody else any good. And so I know there was many people praying for me in that time of my life. And so in the same way, if we know the nominal Christians in our life, quote unquote, we want to pray for them, pray that they would be awakened, pray that they would have a reputation to, to, to a reality to match their reputation. We want to um, heed this in our own hearts, right? We can't operate on yesterday's spiritual capital today. We need God's grace today for today's troubles and for um, whatever God has called us to, to be on mission. And so it's a great reminder as a church. So I think about Four Oaks, we're 30 years old, about like the church in Sardis. Um, I think that there is a reputation by God's grace of knowing him, standing for his word, having uh, a real relationship, being on mission in the city of Tallahassee, seeing lives transformed and changed. But may that never be a place that we rest, let us rest in Christ and what he's called us to do today. So that's the word to the church in Sardis. Tomorrow, the church in Philadelphia, same time, same station. Thanks for joining us. Let us pray. Lord, help us, help our hearts not to grow cold and hardened like the church in Sardis. And even more importantly, Lord, help us not to be deceived about who we truly are. But Lord, if this, if this message, if this word has pricked anyone's heart this morning, um, let them 
turn and run immediately to you in your gospel of grace, where they will find mercy and grace in their time of need. So Lord, thank you, Jesus, for giving us this hard but loving and gracious word. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.